Well, today we start the book of James. Uh, James is a lively book. It's an encouraging book. It's an exhortative book. It is a, a popular book. Uh, Doug Moo points out three reasons why it's so popular among believers. One is that it's just so darn practical. Typical of the whole letter is uh, the command of 122, don't merely be a hearer of the word and so deceive yourselves, but be doers of the word. So practical, right? Be a doer of the word. That makes a difference for me on Monday morning. I need to be a a doer of the word, all right, not merely a hearer. I, that has to do with the price of bread. And the practical punchiness of this just fills the letter. It's really obvious that James' purpose is not so much to, to inform as it is to exhort, to encourage, and to chastise. So, so James isn't a heady book. Now, be clear, it's, it's, it's not that James doesn't care about theology. He does, but his focus is on the outworking of theology, faith in practice Monday through Saturday, you might say. So this book is, is practical. This book is also concise. So I think another reason why this book is so easy to like is that James is just a bottom-line guy. He just, he gets to the point with, with no messing around. You, you know, when you read the, the Proverbs, it's like there's, there's treasure. There's just concise treasure around each corner and in each verse. James kind of strikes you in a similar way. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world, he's an enemy of God. That's just concise right there. And then third... James' metaphors and illustrations make his teaching so easy to understand. You know what your tongue is like? It's like the rudder of a ship, small but huge impact. You know what your life is like? It's like a vapor, brief and then gone. You know what it's like when you hear the word but you don't do it? It's like looking at your face in a mirror and then you go away and you immediately forget what you look like. So easy to understand, right? And so this wonderful book, practical, concise, easy to understand, this is a wonderful book, but at the same time, this is, oh, such a challenging book. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James tells us what we need to hear, but I dare say it's not necessarily what we want to hear. And so with expectation and hopefulness for the Spirit of God to work in our midst, as we work through this book, I want to give you an introduction to it today. And to start the introduction, what I actually want to do is I want to start in the book of Acts. Now, why am I going to start in the book of Acts? Well, because that's the context of James. Uh, You don't have to turn anywhere, but just, just follow me for a second. When the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, so he, he, he rose from the grave, but then he appeared to his disciples and to others over the course of 40 days. But after that, he rose, he went into heaven, and then after that, what was the next big thing to happen? Anybody know? It was Pentecost. 
That's right. The pouring out of the promised Holy Spirit and the New Testament church was born. Acts chapter 2 tells us what happened. The Spirit's poured out. Peter preaches the gospel. 3,000 sinners respond with repentance and faith and are baptized. Then you see the church do what the church has always done. Let me just read Acts 2, 42 and following for you. You don't have to read it. I'm just going to read it for you. Acts 2, 42, it says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that's gospel content, scriptural instruction. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They gathered together. To the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and then also just meals together. And prayer. And awe came upon every soul. Verse 44 says, All who believed were together and had all things common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now this is not a vision for Christian socialism or communism. The whole Bible affirms the goodness of private property. This is a vision for generosity and sacrifice. If any brother or sister in the church had a need... Anybody in the church was willing to sacrifice in order that that need might be met. There wasn't a needy person among them because the church was so committed to caring for the practical needs of the body. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts and praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the birth and the beginnings of the New Testament church. And hopefully, brothers and sisters, honestly, you see just, frankly, the continuity between them and us because the church has always been about the same things. Gathering together, celebrating the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the preaching and teaching of the gospel word, prayer, praise, sacrificial giving, And our commitment to one another goes beyond mere seeing on Sunday morning. We endeavor to be involved in one another's lives. But but just to keep it back in Acts for a second, if you're just following along, it's not long before these young believers encounter a significant trial. In Acts 7, there's a godly man who was appointed a deacon, a proto-deacon really, and his name was Stephen, and he's stoned in chapter 7. And 8.1 begins like this. It says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So this church is scattered to the four winds, okay? Persecution arose. Persecution in Jerusalem arose. Everybody's dispersed. Only the apostles stayed. And so all of these young Jewish Christians are just uprooted. Now, the good thing is that this is how God intended for the gospel to spread. Acts 11 says, Those who were scattered went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word, preaching and teaching the gospel. That's awesome. But here's the deal. These are young Christians... These are Christians who very much need to be established and strengthened 
and built up in their faith. They have just started the race of faith, but they have got to run all the way to the end. And this is the context for James. James was the brother of the Lord Jesus. He was converted after Jesus' resurrection. He wasn't one of the original 12, but he became an apostle, and he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. How significant of a leader was he? Well, when the Jerusalem council convened in Acts 15, it was his words that definitively swayed the council that the Gentile believers need not keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. I'd say that's a pretty significant leadership role. So now put yourself in context. James was the leader of the church, a leader of the church. Pastorally, he sees these dear souls scattered to the four winds. Just imagine if something happened here in Georgia, Vermont, where all of you had to just flee, and me and the elders stay, and we hear reports over time of how you're doing. That's what's going on here. He hears reports of how these believers are doing and his heart goes out to them because they are struggling. First of all, they've been uprooted from their homes. Hello, that's not easy. And that trial has seemed to bring forth a whole host of problems amongst believers, like partiality between the rich and the poor, like sinful attitudes and actions and speech, like just general worldliness and like overall spiritual decline. And so pastorally, James, he takes up his pen and he writes... And he wants to encourage them in their trials. And he wants to warn them and exhort them that only faith that not merely hears but does the word, only that faith will save in the last day. And so let's get into this. One more little detail as we start here. Let me just... Go over with you the date of this letter. Stephen was stoned in A.D. 33. The Jerusalem Council took place in 48 or 49. Most scholars place the date of James around the mid-40s. So this is very early on in the writing of the canon. And here's what I actually want to do. I want to read James for you. I want to read the whole book. It's not going to take very long. I'd encourage you to follow along if that helps you concentrate. And then after I read, I'm going to make a few comments about themes. I'm going to give you some pastoral encouragement on how you should approach this book as we begin this series. And then, Lord willing, this will all serve to whet your appetite for what's coming. So I want you to turn to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1. If you're in the Blue Bibles, that's on page 1011. If you're using your own Bibles, this is towards the very end. Towards the very end, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Stable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, brings forth, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away, and he once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and he does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to him who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme that honorable name by the which you are called? 
If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers? What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Do not be boast and false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and fighting from among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother. Speaks evil against the law and he judges the law. But if you judge the law, You're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able both to save and destroy. But who are you to judge his brother? Excuse me, his neighbor. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, don't you feel like you just heard a sermon? Don't you feel like James just preached? He did. He did. He just preached. This is his earnest plea to brothers that he holds dear. By the way, did you notice just how many times brothers, brethren, my brothers, there's a familial, brotherly, fraternal love that's just oozing from almost every sentence in this thing. He is pleading with believers who are dear to his heart. And what's his overall message? What is the melody that just rings throughout across this whole letter? True faith works. True faith works. The faith that saves isn't merely a faith that hears and receives. It's a faith that does. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being a hearer, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, i.e., he will be saved. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? Answer, for as the body without the spirit is dead. Thank you, Talia. 
so also faith apart from works is dead. True faith works. That's his message. And every part of the book fits in that theme. So here are just some of the main ideas in James. Let me just take some of these threads and just show you how they fit into some buckets. True faith works in every way. So in other words, what I'm saying is that true faith works itself out in every aspect of our lives. How about our tongues and our speech? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. If anyone thinks he's religious, by the way, that's an old word we don't use anymore unless we use it negatively, but it just means faith. If anyone thinks he's religious, if anyone thinks he has faith and he doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion, his faith is worthless. True faith works itself out in our words. How about our worldliness? How about thoughts, desires, actions that are more reflective of the unbelieving world and its priorities than the character of Jesus Christ? James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. You ask and you do not receive because you ask it wrongly that you may spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God and therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? True religion, James says, is to keep oneself unstained from the world. True faith works itself out in things such as worldly thoughts, desires, priorities, actions. Those things are put away. How about in our relationships with our brothers and sisters? There is a ton in James about how we relate to each other. First of all, there's preferential treatment in the church towards the rich. James goes after that. There's lack of care for one another. What good is it, my brothers, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and well-filled without giving them the things needed for the body? James goes after that. Further, in step with the Lord Jesus and in the book of 1 John, James affirms that the very heart of Christianity is at stake in us caring for the weak and the vulnerable in our midst as represented by widows and orphans. How about how we speak to one another? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. I'm quoting James here. These aren't just my thoughts. How about how we preserve one another's faith. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I hope you're seeing the point. True faith must true faith must work itself out in our relationships here. 
There must be indiscriminate love, non-preferential treatment, sacrificial commitment, kind-hearted affection, dogged commitment to discipling one another. True faith works. One more little area for you. We've, we've got multiple weeks to work this out, so I won't, I won't spend it all on one sermon. But how about how true faith works in regards to our attitudes? Our attitudes about money. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. I'll explain that next week, but suffice it to say, true faith changes our attitude about money. It changes our attitude about the future. Come now, you who say, I'm going to do this for a while, and then I'm going to do that for a while. Your life's a vapor. You're today, gone tomorrow. You ought to say, therefore, if the Lord wills, I'll do this for a while and that for a while. You see, there's a recognition of the one who holds my life and my future in his hand, and it's not me. And so, therefore, our attitude about the future changes. My attitude about suffering changes. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Honestly, when you think about it, the big picture is that, is that true faith works and transforms in every way. Money, relationships, speech, actions, attitudes, priorities, trials, worldliness. What's not touched? Everything's touched. True faith is a doer of the word. And true faith works every day. So this obedience, this, this doing of the word, it's not something James gives a pass on when times get rough. In fact, the very context of the book of James is a hard time. It's a trial. These brothers and sisters have been uprooted from their home. They are not only spiritual sojourners in a world that is not their home, as we all are. They are actually quite literally physical sojourners. And I think if it were us, we'd be tempted to give them a pass given this very difficult season. I I think we'd be tempted to give them a pass on some things. I know you're impatient and grumbly. It's a hard time. I know you're unkind and critical of others right now. It's a hard time. I know you're angry. Angry at God, angry at others, angry at life. It's a hard time. I know and I can really understand that you're you're being totally unreasonable. It's a hard time. You know, I can understand you being selfish and a bit dishonest about your business dealings. It's a hard time. Listen, I, I, I get it, man. You gotta, you gotta take care of you right now. You can't think about others. It's a hard time. That's man's thinking. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. James, looking at his beloved sheep in their time of difficulty, doesn't pull any punches. Why? Because faith isn't just operative when it's sunny and 75. Faith is operative every day, even in the hard days. In fact, honestly, like, like 
Like scratch through the even in the hard days and replace it with especially in the hard days. Faith is operative every day, especially in the hard days. James calls them to faithfulness and obedience in their trials because quite simply he wants to see them in heaven. Fair weather faith is not saving faith. And so out of love, he exhorts them and he warns them. One commentator says this, he says, you can imagine a young believer sitting there and asking James, and he says, James, does the road to heaven wind uphill all the way? And James says, yes, to the very end. And I should comment on that last part. To the very end. You can see in James that true faith works in every way, every day, until the last day. Rounding the bend to the end of the corner, you got the to the end of the letter, you, you got the, the tape visible as the runners are approaching. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. <laughs> Until the coming of the Lord, be patient, brothers. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is a call to endure to the end. True faith endures to the end. Uh, So we're going to see in the coming weeks all these things and we're going to see more. And we're going to see how these pieces fit together. And we're going to be encouraged and we're going to be exhorted and we're going to be challenged. And to that end, I just want to give you a few pointers as it relates to applying James. First of all, you need to embrace the message. What I mean by that is that, brothers and sisters, if you have any idea of a faith that is going to take you to heaven, but it doesn't look like what James describes, it's not going to take you to heaven. The only faith that saves is a faith that both hears and does the word of God in every way, all aspects of life, in every day, the good times and the bads, and until the last day. No other faith will save. All other faith will lead you to hell. You have to embrace that truth. Now, is that in conflict with salvation by faith alone, apart from works? Not one bit. Not one molecule, not one whisker, of this is in conflict with the fact that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone apart from any works. How can I say that? Very simple. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves never remains alone. It is accompanied by every good work. That's how Martin Luther put it. By the way, Kevin Munger, who's in Germany, just sent me a picture this morning of a statue of Luther, and he said, here's your boy. And I thought, oh, I'd like to see that. 
Or we could put it how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but then our saving faith in Christ results in good works. And just to define the terms, what are good works? They're actions and attitudes that reflect the Bible's teaching. They're actions and attitudes that reflect the Bible's teaching. Saving faith results in actions and attitudes that are in keeping with the Bible's teaching. These works are the fruit and evidence of saving faith. So you need to understand the message, accept the message, and understand that it's not in conflict with salvation by grace through faith alone. This is not salvation by works. Next, you need to understand the foundation of the message. And the foundation of the message is this. Conversion. What do I mean by that? I mean that James is writing to Christians, or at least those who say they're Christians, and what is true of Christians. What's true of Christians is that they've been born again. They are not enslaved to sin, They are not spiritually dead and unable to obey the commands of Christ. They are new men and new women. They have the Spirit of God living in them, renovating them from the inside out. And so they have new hearts. They have new eyes. They have new ears, new tongues, new hands, new feet. In other words, a new way of life about them. They walk in newness of life, which is what we confess in baptism, buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in what? Newness of life. You know that confession. They've been born again. And so James isn't calling for something unreasonable here. He's calling for the most reasonable thing ever. He's simply calling them to live in accord with who they actually are, saints. Let me just take this a hair further. You know why this is so entirely reasonable? Because when you're joined to Jesus Christ by faith, you are ruined for every lesser pleasure. When you're joined to Jesus Christ by faith, you are ruined for every lesser pleasure. The other day I had pizza from this joint in Burlington. Have you ever had Leonardo's pizza? Don't do it unless you want to never enjoy Domino's again. I'm serious. Every bite, if you've ever watched me eat something good, I'm like, oh, mm, this is so good. Every bite, I was like, this is phenomenal. And Domino's is dead to me now. That's what Jesus does for our taste buds as it relates to sin. He has become so tasty to us that sin and unrighteousness and worldliness, all of that, it becomes something we no longer want. And so what that results in is doing the word. It's not a chore for the believer. It's not forced or painful. 
Because whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides thee. So says the psalmist in Psalm 73. Amen? Amen. And so with that, the next word for you as we go through James is this. You need to obey the commands. This is so very simple, but please don't let it pass you by. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of imperatives in this book. There are a lot of commands in this book. And you need to take these commands as commands addressed to you by the grace of God. You need to take them as such, and you need to endeavor to obey them. Ask God for grace to receive them and to do them as we work through this book. Now, it's also important as we work through the book of James that you have the right outlook. Have the right outlook. Here's what I mean. Here's the outlook I want you to have. Blessing is found in being a doer of the word. Blessing is found in being a doer of the word. Brothers and sisters, if you have any ounce of a thought in your mind that God's commands are burdensome, that God's commands are heavy or hard or unreasonable, do not believe those thoughts. Those are lies from the enemy of the devil. God's commands are given for your happiness. God's commands are given for your blessing. God's commands are given for your enjoyment. Not only your eternal enjoyment, your present enjoyment. So don't swallow his commands like castor oil, okay? Swallow them like the sweetest honey you have ever tasted. And also have the right outlook as it relates to realistic expectations. James does not present a picture of total victory in the Christian life. He does not present the Christian as 100% always obeying the word of God. He does not paint a picture of perfection in the Christian life. This doing of the word is not a perfect doing. It is not the Christians never struggle or are overcome by sin at times. Of course we struggle. Of course we are overcome at times. So do not condemn yourself for your struggles. That is not the intent of James' letter. The intent is to show an overall pattern of obedience in the Christian life such that it can be truly rightly said of Christians. They are doers of the word. And finally, I'd say that as we go into James, allow James to assess the authenticity of your faith. James intends this letter to spur obedience. He does. But James also intends this letter to be a diagnostic, a test of sorts. He knows that there are those who say they have faith. If anyone says, I have faith. He he knows there are those who say they have faith, who think they have faith, but in truth they don't. And their lives, their day-to-day lives reveal that. Let the diagnostic element of James do his work, brothers and sisters. If you say that you have faith, but your life does not look like what James says it should look like, please 
don't, just keep on keeping on. By all means, don't. Don't do this. Don't just try to do better and get yourself to look more like this. What I want you to do is to stop and to do some real business with the Lord. Stop just coming Sunday after Sunday and living and thinking and feeling the same way without ever asking questions. Stop. And just ask God to do some real work in your soul. There is no more important question than have you been born again? Do you have a new heart? And don't forget, God grants new hearts through repentance and faith in the gospel. In the glorious news that Jesus came to die for sinners, for flagrant sinners, Serial adulteresses and adulterers and the prodigal sons. And for religious sinners. For the one who has an appearance of godliness. Who may have gone to church for years. But the substance just isn't there. Worldly thoughts pervade. Fleshly lusts consistently overpower. Sins of the tongue run rampant. Close relationships are wreck because you're so unreasonable. Duties at home or at work or church consistently neglected. Conscience unfeeling towards conviction of sin. The gospel came for sinners like that. Praise God. And life comes. Eternal life comes through repenting of these things. Through believing that Jesus Christ pays the price for these things. And by entrusting yourself to the God who saves through Jesus Christ. Ask God to show you your state through this book. And more than that, ask God to grant you repentance and faith through this book. Repentance and faith that results in being a doer of the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the songs that we have sung, for the prayers that we have prayed, and for the word which you have given to us, all for our instruction, all for our salvation. And we ask, God, that you use this sermon series in the book of James to save and sanctify. Be gracious to us, God, we pray. We are dependent upon you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.